0: Welcome to Rebel Chums! Mm-hmm. join, Hello. Hello everyone. You join us for the third instalment of our third season of the threes this week. We are continuing with all of the Harry Potter series, and with this being the third instalment, the clever amongst you may have realised that Definitely this is Hallows. obviously the Half-Blood Prince this week. Are we all ready to discuss that? Deathly silence there. <laughs> no, we are of course doing Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Fifteen years old, by the way. Fifteen years. Oh, Jesus, really? Yeah, like if 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 Sirius had gone to Azkaban when this film came out, he would have been released three years ago. Fifteen years is the
1: age of the main three actors while making this film. Oh,
0: that's that's a better fact. You've upstaged me there. Well done. <laughs> so they are now thirty. They're there. all thirty. Yeah. yeah. More, oh. The same amount of their life has passed since making this as before making this. <laughs> wow. Okay. Anyway, phone them
2: and tell them and make them upset.
0: <laughs> oh God. Yeah. To be fair, they're all forever kids to us, aren't they? But uh, yes. Anyway, the other voices you can hear. First of all, I'm Andy. The other voices you can hear are our other two regulars. First, hello, Jake. Hello. And hello, Rob. Hi. And the other voice, which you may have spotted is a previous contributor of ours, a very much friend of the podcast. It's our good friend, Jay. Hello, Jay.
3: Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on.
0: You are Yeah, first time welcome. you've
2: been back since uh, Bug's Life, right? Yes, yes, I think so, yeah. More than a year ago.
0: No was way. Was it really that really? long?
2: Yeah, yeah, that was uh, August last Jeez. year, I think.
0: Back wow. in those days, Prisoner of Azkaban was only 14 years old. Oh, crap. Well, I'm very glad <laughs> to be back on. Well, before we get started, then, why did not you tell us, Jay, why did you pick this one without just saying it's the best one like why did you choose to talk about this one
3: uh you put me in kind of a bind there because you've kind of taken <laughs> <laughs> you taken away my opening line um yeah i, I love the i love the, the i love the story of harry potter i love the books specifically i'm not really a big fan of the films except for the third one i think the third one is genuinely a really really good film and i i don't really rewatch. The Harry Potter films ever, I just don't really feel the urge to. The F- Prisoner of Azkaban, I watch probably every year. Like I, It's just a really comfy film for me, and I think really? it's genuinely really, really good. Um, yeah, so yeah, I'm interested to know what you guys think as well.
1: I mean, go on, Jake, you first go I was going to say, one of the things that we've been asking our guests as they've been on the show, I say that we've only had two guests on our show so far, <laughs> so we have asked them. What is the relationship to the Harry Potter series, and how did they get into it? Because mm. it's quite because the Harry Potter universe is like intrinsically very linked, whether it's the books or the films, or yes, yeah, basically anything, and you can't have one without the other. So That's tell true. us, James, tell us a little bit about your history, your personal history with Harry Potter.
3: Okay, um, I was given, I think, for maybe a birthday or something, I was given uh, a hardback version of the Chamber of Secrets, um, which I promptly read half a chapter of and was like the hell is this about like, like you got what? that as a hardback there's, that's rare these days ma- it's first edition as well wow. um and i was like what's this all why is there magic why is there a weird elf creature at the bottom of the garden i don't really understand it um then one of my aunties gave me the goblet of fire for another birthday <laughs> and i read the first chapter and was like why is a snake eating someone i don't, I don't get it <laughs> um it wasn't yeah, that, until a that chapter was already out of context
0: <laughs> it wasn't
3: until a little bit later that i think my mom and dad caught up to the idea that harry potter was this burgeoning phenomenon um and so they got me they filled in the gaps for me by buying me books one and three and i read them loved them and then from then on uh i got each of the books um you know on day of you know day of release and read them uh you know as quickly as possible um yeah and i just and obviously because you know the films came out when we were kids so i was keeping up with the films the whole time too um but yeah that was me and yeah and i just the stories just always stuck with me i've reread the books like a couple of times in the intervening years um because again i just find them really really comfy and nice to read um yeah. I mean, we um,
0: we were at school together, weren't we, went, when Harry Potter was at its height, and the number of conversations that we've had about Harry Potter over the years. Oh, absolutely, and, yeah. And also, one of the greatest complain fests and bitch fests that we've ever had was when we both talked about the crimes of Grindelwald. <laughs> yeah,
3: I, I, on my way back, I went to see <laughs> Crimes of Grindelwald, and on my way back, I was walking home alone. And I, uh, I rang my girlfriend, and I spent a good, solid half an hour just <laughs> ranting down the phone at her. Cause... Yeah, I
2: can say that Nor can uh, sympathise as well. She's had to listen to me go on about films for things, uh, yeah, you know, like films that she's never seen and doesn't care about seeing. And I've had full fifteen minute conversations with her. I mean, conversations sounds like they were two sided. Yeah, were... exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I think I yeah. thought the first,
3: the first Fantastic Beasts, I thought was fine. I didn't like the second one. Um, the but... Crimes
2: of Crimes of Grindelwald. <laughs> As it were.
0: But, um, the crimes
3: but, yeah, of screenwriting that that's my history with harry potter i also i consider myself a ravenclaw if that matters
0: oh well we did this thing when we had tony on last week that everyone is a sort of combination of two i would suggest jay that you are a raven puff no I'm not, I mean... ra- I'm not saying you are i'm not saying you're a <laughs> raving puff or or a huffleclaw
3: that's an unfortunate choice of words yeah huffleclaw
0: so. maybe huffleclaw
3: I respectfully disagree. How dare you call me a Hufflepuff?
0: Well, what would you combine yourself with? Would you be a Ravenclaw or a Slytherin?
3: No, in all honesty, I, probably, like, I, I don't think I'm. I'm certainly not, you know, ambitious or cunning enough to be a Slytherin, and I'm not arrogant or stupid enough to be a Gryffindor. So, I probably would be a combination of <laughs> Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff, to be honest.
0: Yeah, I think so. Anyway, the only, the only other thing I want to ask you before we get started, Jay, as we always ask people, is what are your memories of watching this film for the first time? Like, can you remember that?
3: Uh, I, I do and I don't because, as we said, 15 years. Um, I, I'm pretty, I must have seen it with you now that I think about it. Probably saw it with I you. I
0: highly doubt it because I saw this with my family. Okay. Uh, I don't think we did see this together. No. Okay,
3: because I saw it with a bu- with a bunch of our friends. But <laughs> yeah, I remember watching this, and I I, I do remember because you know the first ones came out and they were, you know, they were they were they were just adaptations of the things. They never really la- made that lasting an impact on me. But then when the third one came out, I do remember there being a a big buzz about the film, even though you know we're all like, whatever we were 12, 13... We didn't know what, you know, cinema, you know, was as a concept. But I think we all got the feeling that there was something quite special and different about this one. And we all came out of it going, oh, this is this was really good.
0: Rob, what about you? What's your earliest memories of this one? Well,
2: I can't remember. (laughs) Um, So they're not really memories, technically, because I I can't remember them. Um, What a deep um, thing to say. I feel like I have just I have seen this film so many times that I was worried that it had lost all meaning. Uh, turns out it hasn't so um this is not necessarily my favorite to comfort watch but it is my favorite harry potter film i think my favorite to comfort watch is the goblet of fire because you have to pay the least attention to that <laughs> whereas with this one i feel like this is the kind of film where especially in this kind of franchise where i mean i, I love this for a, a number of reasons but one of the main reasons i love it is because all of the people and there are there are quite a lot of them you know the, you know harry potter's a really popular franchise but there are people out there who profess to have never enjoyed any of the books and never enjoyed any of the films who just hated it all and oh no it's just this awful thing and they get all snobby about it and there they are depriving themselves of this wonderful coming of age tale that the prisoner of azkaban is and i get a little bit of a kick out of that every time i watch it and it's just that there are people in this world who are so snobby about young adult fiction that they will constantly deprive themselves of this wonderful story and they won't get any enjoyment out of it, and because they don't get as much, I get more out of it. So it's more for me, so screw them. Um, <laughs> that, that's my uh, memory of The Prisoner of Azkaban. It, Jake, it's, how about it's you? It's right, gradually formulated that opinion.
1: Jake, how about you? Um, I very much remember watching Prisoner of Azkaban in the cinema, although I would have been nine at the time, so I, 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 was, I was quite young. But yeah, my distinct memory of watching this in the cinema is because of the ending of it. It's just so (laughs) abrupt and bizarre. (laughs) Um, I'm sure we'll talk more about it in the future. But I remember thinking because I've watched the other Harry Potter films and. It's, it's safe to say, after what we watched the Chamber of Secrets, the endings of the first two films are quite drawn out and long. I think we made that point last week. Yeah. And, the, yeah, the first two follow the book, like, religiously. So you get to the third film, and first of all, I was nine, and I was questioning, why the hell has Harry only just got his firebolt now? This happens halfway in the book. He should have had it ages ago. So and but that was clicking in my head is that does that mean we're only halfway through the film even though everything's happened and then it ends <laughs> and I'm like what's just happened why is it ended I don't understand what's going on too much for a 90 year old brain to compute but I because of that experience of the very abrupt and strange ending that dispersed itself from the book somewhat it was a very memorable cinema experience and it's one of the only films I remember watching when I was young than oh. I am now so um, yeah. It's, it 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 was it was a fun watch in the cinema and it's it's still very much a fun watch now.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, what you, about but, you, Andy? Well, I saw this. Uh, it was the Easter holidays, I remember, and my family had a, the, all four of us had an outing to go and see this. Even though my mum and dad, I don't think had seen. Well, one of them must have seen the previous two because it must have took us to see them. But they weren't into Harry Potter. But me and my sister were enormous fans. Um, The overriding feeling I remember is that I was so shocked by how different this was to the previous two. Like, I loved it. I was like, wow, this one seemed way more, like, cool. And, like, I really want to see that again. Thing is, though, I consider, like, not to too much of a degree, but I do consider myself a bit of a book purist. Like, I generally really don't like it when they play fast and loose with plot points. But it's nothing compared to my sister. My sister, like was mortified by the fact that you know the first two are like basically straight adaptations where they basically yeah. just rip the book from the page, and she loved that and was horrendously upset by a lot of the trims that they make in this one because that is something I've observed that this is the first one that you know actually is a pragmatic adaptation and actually cuts some points, and there are some bits that I think it's a real shame. And there's definitely a lot of stylistic changes. So it's a big leap forward, this one. And I think if you were a complete book purist, you might have been a bit turned off. But as a film, I have always really been struck by this one. I think it's so unique and so interesting to watch. And so I've always loved this one. And at the time, I remember thinking that was easily the best of the three. And I don't think my opinion's ever changed, really. I think this has pretty much always been my favourite. So after the jump, let us discuss Harry Potter... the Prisoner of Azkaban. Let's do it.
1: to another year at Hogwarts. Double, double,
0: double, 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 <laughs> Sidious Black has escaped from Azkaban prison. Swear to me, you won't go looking for Black. Why would
2: I go looking for someone who wants to kill me?
0: Okay, so, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, let's get started. I don't know where to really start with this, except how good is this? I love this film.
2: Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. Good Um,
0: movie.
2: Yeah, I watched this about three years ago, Uh, that was the last time I watched it, and um, I thought to myself, yeah, this was good, but I don't... I I didn't think to myself back then that it was as good as I'd remembered but then I watched it yesterday and I'm like, nope, nope I was right, this is actually, you know it is fantastic. I think, you know you were just talking about um, the ways that this adapts itself to screen from the books and obviously like, my memories of the books aren't as strong as um, yours guys so, you know, stop me if I'm wrong at any point, but I feel like the problem with the first two films is that they're very faithful to the Plot and the events of the first two books so it means that there's no time to explore anything deeper whereas this film might excise a few things and make a few unfortunate um changes if you will if you're a book purist but i think that in doing that what it does is that it gets right down to the essence of what this story actually means which is everything that's missing from the first two films you know how i was saying the first film is basically the story of a kid who's pa- who finds out his parents were murdered and that he's a wizard, wizard and that he's vulnerable to the dark wizard who tried to murder his parents. But it never really actually feels like that. It feels like, a, well, it is. It's a family kids film. This feels like the kind of film that really analyzes the weight of expectation on Harry's shoulders all of a sudden just because he's the chosen one. And I'm not saying this is like a, a bad thing for the the rest of the films around it, but the rest of the films around this one so I'm talking one, two, four, five, six, seven, and eight, all see Harry as being this central protagonist as something to celebrate. It's just it's not a, a problem. It's just you know it's 21st century cinema. He's your next marketable hero, the, the glasses and the the scar. Like you know, he's he's your big favourite protagonist for teenagers growing up in the 2000s. Whereas with this one, it feels like it properly analyzes the burden of being the chosen one at the center of this kind of story. And it makes so many wonderful decisions. I don't really mind or care about the adaptation stuff. I mean, just as a film on its own, it makes such brilliant decisions in terms of how often characters are on screen, how often carry, how, how Mm -hmm. often Harry is alone, how often the film mirrors the themes of the film mirror, the events of the film, how often it tries to reflect on itself, analyze itself. What does this mean? And It asks so many questions of Harry and it asks so many questions of the story of the first two films. And you just find yourself further and further engrossed in what the film is trying to say. And then it just so happens that I think it's actually this film is so good that even as someone who's not a huge fan of the way that J.K. Rowling writes these books, I am curious to go back to read this because I feel like all of the great ideas that this film has must surely be in the book somewhere for Alfonso Cuaron to have found them. So I'm, I'm curious to go back and read this and I've never really been curious to go back and read the book since about 2012.
0: Well I, th- I think um, I've always loved the book. I think um, what Alfonso Cuaron really does is really brings out the very best of the book that he... I think there's not to say that he, you know, doesn't do an amazing job, but I think some of the stuff he gets credit for is already there in the book, like the themes of Yeah, that's of why this I'm one, curious to go back to the book. The themes of this one are really strong. The characters, in particular, are really, really strong, um, and I think this has got one of the most unique, one of the most interesting plots of um, of all of the books. But what he does with it is like he really, really like makes the most of every kind mm. of moment, really. I mean, the direction is just beautiful in this film. He really, like, sort of is the polar opposite of Chris Columbus, who basically mm-hmm. is, you know, he's, 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 very, he's very good at what he does, but he's not the most imaginative director in the world, whereas every single shot in this, it looks like Alfonso Cuaron is like, how can we have something going on in the background? How can we, like, make this more visually interesting? And I just I mean... love all that stuff. It feels I like say this, you know, Sorry,
3: go on. I was just say it feels like he's actually trying to tell the story with cinematography rather than just putting a camera on, like sets and actors. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Which helps we've a complained.
0: We complained about... that the previous two films were too talky and that they were too much tell rather than show, and this one is very much show,
3: not yeah. tell.
0: Mm-hmm. Possibly sometimes a little too far the other way, which I'll come to later. But that's like basically my only criticism of this mm-hmm. film. Um, well, um, yeah.
2: I've basically I've already as soon as I watched the film. Um, I did, like, a note-based review of it, so I'll be kind of quoting from that quite a lot, but that, it's, that, I feel like, by, it, it's weird, because I feel, I think the film treats the book in the same way that it treats Harry, which is that it strips absolutely everything away to look at the bare essence of what it is, and I feel like the film does that to the book by stripping away all potentially extraneous detail to get to the the core messages and core themes, and then the film strips everything, and, and even the plot, to be honest, strips everything away from Harry to look at him. You know, there's no distractions, there's no Quidditch. Well, then I mean, there's Quidditch, but he gets his broom broken. All of the stuff that makes Hogwarts such a safe and fun place for Harry to be. You know, it, Hogwarts, um, he says, Hogwarts is my home in the Chamber of Secrets. You know, that's his real home. But all of a sudden, this home of his this kind of sanctuary of safety even though he's been attacked in the past two films he still sees it as like this place where he belongs this kind of sanctuary of safety but in this third film the tagline is important something wicked this way comes like no matter where he turns there's always threats there's a serial killer coming to get him there's dementors there's his past coming after him there's the grim one of his favorite teachers is a is is a, a secret werewolf You know, there's loads of clocks in this film, loads of references to clocks and time and not being able to escape and not being able to stop what's coming at you. And Harry, I'm not saying that Ron and Hermione are barely in this film, but compared to the first two, Harry's very much on his own, which is why he finds so much solace in in Lupin, I guess. And this is the kind of stuff that's made, made me very curious to go back to the book. Because all of the stuff, I guess, like Harry not being allowed to Hogsmeade, is that is that a book thing, right? Yeah, that's yeah, that's all. Yeah, yeah. It's... And and so it means that like Harry's constantly on his own. Like he's watching his friends go off and do all these fun things that he wants to go and do, but he can't because and it's because he can't. It means that he spends it means the film spends a lot of time with him as he spends a lot of time with himself. And like I try to get it down to like an elevator pitch. how I feel about the real strengths of every film like I try to get it down to like a sentence if somebody asks me what do you love most about this film I always try to come back with one sentence that really or how I or like if I really hate a film one sentence that just explains everything about how I feel and I feel like in this one my sentence is basically in the first two films Harry goes chasing after mystery and danger and in this film mystery and danger come chasing after him
0: Yeah, that's a good summary, actually. I I absolutely
2: love that aspect of this. It's, like I say, everything that made Hogwarts such a fun and safe place for Harry to be gets taken away from him in this film, which means that the only places he can find solace are in Lupin and in himself, which makes this a very strong self-discovery coming-of-age tale. And I'm so curious to go back and read the books now because I want to know for sure... In myself whether Alfonso Quaron has looked at this and gone right these are the essential ingredients even if the focus isn't quite there in the book let's put them on screen or whether J k Rowling after two books went right probably time for me to analyze this because this is like I'm thinking like this is obviously the first story without Voldemort in it so there's I, yeah, no I think yeah, yeah that's and... that's
3: something that I really love is is the it's the It's is it the only one that isn't all to do with Voldemort and that gives it a proper like nice Flavor because it's, it, it's, you've got all that ticking, you know, all the stuff to do with time, and it's, it's, you know, it's obviously we're going to have some time travel later on, but it's kind of like, it is more of a, you know, examining character stuff, and it's just more interesting as well to, to not have. I saw one um, thing online which. Said, like, the bad guy in this film is the government because they want to execute an animal that Harry likes. Like, and by not having a big hmm. villain, by instead of having it be all these new characters, like, really cool lots of characters, little
2: villains and lots of like, yeah. things that are coming at him from different angles. It's, yeah, yeah no, it's, I, I it's actually a refreshing love every dynamic that this film has going on. It's, yeah, it's
3: a refreshing change of pace from, from all the others where it, it they can feel a little bit save the world again, Harry, kind of thing, whereas this one. Yeah, it feels feels really unique in itself, just as a story.
0: I mean, I think what Rob was asking, really, like, is that in the book. I think it is really. I mean, Jay, what do you think about that? Like, I think that does all come through in the book, really. Yeah,
3: I mean, like I say, it's been a while since I read them, but that's, I always thought of the third one as as a bit of a as a bit of a anomaly because there wasn't that built up to a big battle at the end. It was more unique. It was more strange, and it was more yeah in more inward looking we found out more it wasn't so much the mysteries of hogwarts it was the mysteries of characters it was us unraveling some stuff to do with his with his well with his dad specifically but you know his parents and their friends part of what i love about harry potter in general is how well it does that how well it gives all of its characters real history in the first two you get you get the sense of like Oh, he's Harry Potter. Oh, his parents died, and he's the orphan. And his parents were so brilliant and so great. And I love that as the story goes on, you find out that now his parents were kind of, especially his dad, was a bit of a dick, like because they were like human, and that kind of thing is it, it's part of why it makes this quite dark um, as a story is because you're finding out that all these people who are authority figures in his life and who are just the teacher are actual human beings, and that's that that's kind of you know that can lead you into dark places.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing I really love the most, if I had to pick one thing about this film that I love the most, just quickly, is how, like, we learn so much about the past of all of these people, especially Mm -hmm. Lily and James and Sirius and Peter Pettigrew and that, like, McGonagall and Dumbledore were involved in all this, and Snape. I think the fact that we get all this backstory, oh, I just devoured that stuff as a kid. So this, that's, like, the best part of this for me, really. Go on, Rob, Mm. what were you going to say?
2: With regards to them feeling like real people, um, I read a while ago, uh, just kind of casually, that apparently Alphonse Cuaron, like he watched the first two films, and all he had to, one of his main takeaways was, why are they always in robes all the time? And so he made a point of making sure that the characters were dressed in casual clothes.
0: Ah,
1: that is something so that I never even noticed. Re- I think that's a thing. really
0: good decision. Actually. But I think that's one of yeah, the things that
1: makes a film feel way more modern than the other two do.
0: Yeah, because like mm. in the previous two, when they're out yeah. of uniform, they're in like woolly jumpers and you know like cords. They're 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 not wearing normal kid clothes. They're wearing old. Man they're clothes. wearing like Christmas Day clothes. Um, yeah, yeah, it's one of those adaptations. <laughs> they're in their Sunday best like all the time.
3: Yeah, it's one of those adaptation things that's like it. It would be easy to be sniffy about that and be like, well, in the books they always have the robes on. It's like okay, but in in the well film, in the in the, the books to... they wear pointy
0: hats to class, you know.
3: But like in the film like you need to make sh- you need to make people identify with them more and having them it still be wearing like the robes all the time. Essentially. Yeah, if you mm-hmm. have them wearing more normal clothes when they're not in lessons and what have you then Yeah,
1: because they spend spending the weekends at Hogwarts. They're not Hugs- be in... Oh no, sorry, yeah, 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 yeah you are right. The weekends are at Hogwarts, they so not when they've not got classes. So presumably they're not wearing robes all the time. Yeah. Well and they are mm-hmm. wearing robes in the class segments of these films, although I think there's only one class segment, isn't there? So Oh yeah. no two. The there's a few. Wolf. There's a Werewolf one and the... Mm. Um, What's the Defence
3: Against the Dark Arts and the uh, Divination lessons as
1: well? Oh, yeah, there's a Divination lesson. Yeah, I, I, mean, about
0: that. Yeah, I think I think mm. the basic idea is that this one is the first one that really kind of lets them be kids bordering on teenagers, and Goblet of Fire ends up really running with that. And the thing I love about the Goblet of Fire movie is how it's like a proper... You believe that this is a film full of teenagers, and I think that's like really entertaining. and but that all starts from this one like there are loads of good ideas that this film does for the first time, like the real teenagers thing wearing their own clothes, making it all a bit more stylized, stuff that sticks around and that all the characters are like, "Yeah, good idea, let's keep doing that." Yeah, um, so it's um, a very influential, probably the most influential one of the films. I think this one. I absolutely agree. There are
2: aspects of this that are carried on by Mike Newell, who does *Goblet of Fire*, yeah. and obviously David Yates, who does the last four. Like, not just with their own clothes, but the way—if you go back, especially to the scene where they are taught by Hagrid for the first time—you see that all of the kids wear their uniforms in their own individual ways. Like some of them do their ties up really light, really tight, some of them have them really short and loose. Ron doesn't have his top button done up, Harry doesn't have his top button done up, but Hermione does. And there's all these kind of little nuances. And then there's um, there's a scene in the Goblet of Fire, it's the the dancing scene where they introduce the concept of the u Ball and Professor McGonagall leads it with that giant gramophone in the corner and if you look at the uniforms in that scene all of the kids are wearing the ties or in certain ways or one of them's got their shirt untucked or slightly tucked in but not quite and some of them wear blazers and rows but some of them don't and there's all these little the individual personalities of the kids come shining through in that way and it makes everything feel a bit a little bit more lived in and a bit more normal and a bit more like a you know a functioning school yeah and yeah no i i I think this this film is influential for the rest of the franchise in so many ways. I think it completely mm. changes the attitude, and I feel like it completely changes the tone forever. I feel like all of the films after this one want to be this one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I think yeah. one of the key um,
1: the key reasons as well that this film feels more like an actual film and more more way more progressive than the first two is that the direction in this film and the cinematography is just so much more ambitious than the first two films. So much oh, more. Oh my God. Um, Christopher Columbus is just like, water is blown away from him. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, even, <laughs> even, even now, after all this time, I'm still stunned by three moments in particular, just of the f- decisions that he made, Afonso on. The first one that always blows me, blows me away is that long, extended single take in
0: the Leaky Cauldron, yes. Where Arthur so Weasley. Pulls I mean, there's, Harry lo- to the there's side. loads of those, but that is the most impressive. Especially because you get this cool fact that Arthur Weasley only appears in one shot in this film, which is really yes. cool because that's like that whole scene is only one shot. So they did his entire work in this film in one shot. And
2: that line, that line that Harry says to end that sequence, is part of the summary I ended up coming up with because he says why would I go looking for someone who wants to kill me and that's it Harry doesn't go looking for danger in this film he he has a bit of mischief mm. where he goes to Hogsmead in his, inv- in, his inv- invisibility cloak but like in the first film he's constantly like sneaking out at night and going investigating and oh we need to get to the bottom of this mystery we need to find out who's doing this and who's doing what and then in the second film it's like what's this voice need to follow the voice need to find out what this is need to get into this diary need to sneak out at night again need to do all these things whereas in this third film it's like everything that he would usually go looking for is very much like, no, I just want to get on. I just want to have fun with my friends. Can I just have one year where someone's not trying to get at me and not trying to kill me? Oh, and no. Not tr-
1: <laughs> no, you cannot. Well, it just turn no, out that's well, the yeah. case. Nobody's trying to kill him in this one. That no, actually is true. For, yeah, yeah no that,
2: that's is. totally true. But for the majority of
1: it, he's, Harry doesn't feel that yeah, way. Yeah, of course, which is obviously like, what matters.
2: Within seconds of us finding out that Sirius Black isn't the serial killer after him, Remus turns into a werewolf. Yeah, and and then he's attacked by the Dementors and like you know it's there's always like just these like you're saying, usually not having a clearly defined villain is a problem for certain films, but with this one I feel like it really benefits. Yes,
1: and it calls back to what you said earlier on, Rob, about how this film really benefits from Harry exploring Harry's hero character more in depth of him as a person rather than making it him, this is Harry, this is our hero, he's going to have a big conflict at the end, and he's going to resolve it, and that's going to be it. This film is just a lot better... Than at, at doing that sort of thing because it's better at exploring Harry's character rather than his position as a hero. He becomes less of a plot point throughout this film and more of a character you can explore. Um,
2: yeah, it's something to bounce
1: off exactly. for everybody else. It's yeah. I'm not sure how um, much of yeah. that is the the film itself though because the film obviously does that really well. But how much of it is yeah, actually no. just the book um, itself because that is necessarily the plot of the book. Is what serves This is why things.
2: I'm really... Yeah, this is why I'm really curious to go back and read this book specifically because I feel like all of these ideas that are in the film aren't just things that Afonso Cuaron has cooked up in his own head. Yeah. I feel like these are things that he's taken out of the book that already exist. And I have to say, as someone who's not the biggest fan of the books, from memory... Um,
0: Boo. I'm, you I'm, are I'm wrong re- about that, Rob. You are wrong.
2: Well, you know, maybe this is the book that changes my mind. I don't know. I mean, it's... I, I, like I say, I've, as someone who's not too keen on the books, I'm I'm kind of more eager to go back and read this one than I was Chamber of Secrets or anything like that. Um, and I think I felt a little bit eager to go back and watch the Chamber of Secrets. But yeah, no, everything about this, like you were saying about the stylish direction, my, my other two moments are, uh, obviously there's the first one, which is a single take with Arthur Weasley. The second one, which is when the camera heads towards the reflective closet and then pulls away from the reflective closet, and it's like, my God! And they do it again at the end
0: of the scene, which is really cool,
1: because it suggests that the whole scene was a reflection. Yeah. And there's another really good shot as well, that's also another really long one, where they're running from the bridge at the courtyard, through the courtyard, um, Harry and Hermione, to get back up to the um, hospital wing, and the camera follows them, and then it follows them up through the courtyard, through that clock tower, and you get all those bells and ticking things, and then back... into the hospital wing where Harry and Ron are and it's so cool watching that transition happen oh I know and you, you sort of wonder you know a shot is done well in a film when you wonder how on earth did yeah, they do that yeah there are lots of shots in this film that I think how, like where is the cut like, there has to be a cut but where is it like, like that mirror yeah. like that mirror one where he goes into the closet and then comes out again like Rob just mentioned yeah it's, it's like, crazy how the hell yeah. did they do that yeah um, my um,
2: my third one, by the way, just as a little thing, is the way that they use the umbrella in the Quidditch match as a
0: visual distraction. I saw, I noticed for, that for the first for time the this time round. It was yeah, so good, it's really yeah. clever. Uh, just, I mean, if, if we're doing sort of favourite scenes, then I, I I think there are two that deserve a shout out. First of which, I love the. Um, the first iteration of the big expecto patronum at the end where you don't really know who it is and it's just this like miracle moment where suddenly this big stag mm. just erupts in light that's really cool that's one of the most like magical things that's happened so far i think i've always loved that um the other standout of this whole film is right at the beginning i think with the aunt marge scene i oh think is like scene possibly the funniest scene in all eight films ah, like just ripper. everything in that scene is perfect like I, the film could not possibly have started better it was like oh my god i love that scene so much uh,
2: i love that scene so much because every single line is <laughs> just amazing no, I don't know no if line is, is wasted it. <laughs> no no line it is has a purpose. I don't know whether it's i don't know whether it's because of the excellent line reading or the I, I, the one thing i really love about that scene that i've really picked up on over the years is this kind of reluctant level of mutual understanding that has suddenly developed between harry and uh vernon as harry's grown older He's no longer a child in this film. He's a, he's becoming a young adult, which means that there are little conversations, you know, like when you get older and you suddenly become privy to information about your family that you were always kind of protected from when you were a kid, like you'll find out something that an aunt did to a friend years ago and you'll go, "Oh, that what well, that that's what that was." And and I feel like there's a little little bit of reluctant understanding developing between them where there's the um later perhaps I might sign this if you behave. Vernon would never have entertained that previously. He would have gone, no, it's stupid wizard stuff, bog off. And I feel like there's, and then he goes, you know, only if you behave, I will if she does. And it like, there's this little understanding where Vernon and Harry both know that she's very difficult. And then when he's kind of, when Vernon is begging Harry with his eyes to say that he gets caned at uh, St. Brutus's, just so that they can get through the next five minutes of this conversation without anything weird happening, without her having an excuse to moan or complain or anything like that. She seems like someone that they just placate. They don't actually like her. They just kind of get on while she's around. Because even Ripper frightens the life out of Petunia when he runs up to her (laughs) and she goes like, oh, and she can't stand the fact that the dog is there, that she's there. And I love this actual this actual non-cartoonish real relationship is going on between Harry and the Dursleys in this scene. Yeah. That it feels like a pressure cooker and it's it's this element of suspense where it's everybody in the room except Aunt Marge knows exactly what Aunt Marge is like. And it just you can feel the scene gradually building to the point where Harry just can't take this anymore because Aunt Marge keeps saying more and more things, but because no one in the room wants to cross her she just gets more and more outrageous with the things that she says to the point where she goes, if there's something wrong with the bitch, then there's something wrong with the pup. And shut the up. Is like, shut, shut up, up! Shut up!
0: Shut <laughs> up! Can I just say as well, I was so proud at the time, like I was just so unbelievably proud of myself, that when I was reading the book, I always imagined Aunt Marge as Miss Trunchbull from Matilda. Genuinely, mm. I always saw her that way because I was a big fan of the film of Matilda. And then who did they get to play Aunt Marge in this film? They get the same actress. They get Pam Ferris. Like, I actually correctly guessed the actress who would be playing it. So I was so proud of that. Never mind. Just wanted to say that.
2: um, I love the sound design of that scene as well. The button. The button
1: that hits Dudley's head and the noise it makes.
2: Yeah. Well, there's other things as well. Like, the general collage of sound that uh, that they managed to build. The ripping of the tights as she expands. Yeah. And then, like, you can hear there's two TVs showing exactly the same thing at the same time. You throw that into the chaos, the dog, her screaming, the clock. Can we have a special mention for
3: Dudley getting knocked out by a button? Oh yeah. my god. And then yeah, and they then he gets
1: so, up yeah. and just watches the TV while she floats off. He's just stood there eating his food, watching the TV <laughs> in the conservatory. It's so funny. <laughs> oh, I love this scene. And all this is done in with like within two minutes. This scene is so short. To get Christopher Columbus to put this much effort and this much meaning and this much um, character emotion and relationships into one scene would have took him about 20 minutes. It takes all fans <laughs> up <laughs> yeah. Literally two minutes to do all the same stuff because he's good at directing and he knows what to tell the cast to do. He doesn't just make them read lines. He doesn't rely on the cast to be good at acting because don't get me wrong, some of the cast is amazing at acting, particularly people like Pam Ferris. Um, but then you get the main actors who I believe are not so good at acting but they still come across as real characters because just because the direction is so bloody good in this mm-hmm. and it's just yeah it makes you wonder how well Alfonso, Alfonso Caram would have done if he direct, directed the other Harry Potter films as well
0: oh, I mean he was asked to come back and do Deathly Hallows and I just fantasise about how incredible that would have been well I fantasise as we will later reveal I am not a fan of David Yates and well, I James, think... what did you fantasize yeah, he's me the ball with that but go on
3: no it just I because I read um, that originally Del Toro was offered *Prisoner of Azkaban*. Oh my, gosh. Yes, was. Now doing it is fine. Do it right, yeah. Like Juan Huaran doing it is great. But specifically, God, can you imagine like a Del Toro *Goblet of Fire*? Or that, is oh, that would have been amazing. That is crazy. Like how cool oh. would that have been? But hey.
0: Oh well. We're Never mind. In an alternate world, yeah. <laughs> said, by the way, um, Jay or Jake? Because Rob said you've, you've said a few already. Like Jay or Jake, do you have any favorite
1: scenes that we haven't? Said. Um, I have a favourite line go on you, it's like trying to catch smoke with your <laughs>
0: bare hands <laughs> oh my god <laughs> <laughs> who is that kid
1: he has two lines it really Expedition bothers me child. he is
0: this unnamed Gryffindor who wasn't in either of the
1: previous two films let alone like, like the books he's <laughs> and great but I think he is an excellent example of, again, how Alfonso Cuarón uses extras in this film to make the world feel so much bigger than it ever did in the other ones. Like, you have a couple of background characters and kids chattering in the background in the first two films. But this one, like, the extras actually have lines and actually say things and react to things. It bothers me that, though, because we know things. we
0: know that there are no other male Gryffindors in that year. Who is he? He bothers me, that kid. <laughs> Uh, well, who I knows. feel like
2: Seamus or Dean could have said that maybe. Yeah, but, you know. yeah.
1: Dean never gets any lines. Could have gone I could I like Dean. that there's extra characters in this because it it makes it feel more like a a living world. And um, they uh, they've given the fat lady a personality as well. Yeah, by is... making
2: Don French
0: player. Which I thought was interesting.
2: Amazing! It? Just with their boys.
3: Nice that they get
0: her and Lenny Henry both in here because they were married at the time, weren't they? Nice yes, they, get they were. Mentioned. Wait, who yeah.
1: does Lenny Henry play He now? plays the shrunken head. He
0: plays the head. Oh, I didn't know that. Really? You didn't know that? Sorry <laughs> yeah. not to shame you. but uh, Jay, do you have any favourite scenes that we haven't mentioned? Um, well, I, I
3: will absolutely concur with that Gryffindor kid. Um, Thank you. Absolutely Pure fair. love
1: for the Gryffindor smoke with Berham's so,
3: child. He's so like it's just so deadpan. And it's like who invited this kid <laughs> to breakfast? He's just going to sit here and just make ominous like predictions.
1: Yeah, because he says that thing about the well. It's as an what? omen it, of yeah, death. Yeah, exactly. In
3: the in the class, the, the
2: grin, you idiot.
1: Um, the grim.
3: I think I love. I really love the the shrieking shack scene. Um, like that was really good in the books as well because there is just. It, there is a kind of feeling that of like, oh, where is this story actually going? And just everything kind of... There's just one scene where they're on the Shrieking Shack and just everything completely falls apart in a really good way. And every single plot thread, there's just so many twists and you can barely keep up with it. And everyone's betraying everyone else. And it's just really, really fun the first time you watch it because you're just like... It's just so much information. Um, I really enjoy it. Um,
2: Speaking of that um, Shrieking Shack scene, I feel like we should dedicate an entire... Uh, section of this show to professor lupin
0: well i was gonna yeah i was gonna say instead of doing favorite characters let's just talk about the kind of new and notable characters really and yeah the first would be professor lupin i mean this whole i love this whole guest star thing that we have going on with the defense against the dark arts teacher how we get a big new character every time and like they've yeah. set a really high bar with quirrell and lockhart like they were both really memorable characters but Lupin is like he's just so engaging he's so captivating as a character he's so bloody likeable like you you really really care about him and he's like I'm not at all surprised that they ended up bringing him back for like the last three books in a really big way and giving him big storylines because he's an absolutely class actor yeah David Thewlis does excuse me David Thewlis does an amazing job with the role really really great yeah
2: and I feel like he's the kind of person who is perfect for Harry to get to know in this film. There's a line that um, that he says that it, it finally, that was when it kind of it hit the, what this film was doing where they're in the forest and it's after the Quidditch game and Lupin's like, oh, I'm sorry to hear about your broom, blah, blah, blah. And then he says something where he says that Dementors have this way of taking away everything that gives you joy so that you feel like, you you can only feel sadness or something like that i forget what he says like they isolate you and they they make you feel lonely and cold and that's you know when they really like to feast on you and stuff and i'm like yep yeah, this is exactly what the film is doing it's taking away everything that harry enjoys so that we can get right to him and it's not i'm not saying that we're the dementors or anything like that but it's it uses the way that it frames certain storylines around what the film itself is trying to do ah oh, wow and to have Professor Lupin be the guy who kind of revealed that to me, very, very special, because David Thewlis is an excellent screen presence. I think he brings a lot of, he brings this kind of strange element of wisdom and humility that's this this amazing combination of both, because he has so much knowledge to impart, and yet he's never smug about any of it. And it's because he has, in the same way that Harry does he has a lot to hide and he has a lot to think about on his own and he has a lot of personal battles in the way that Harry does. Cause he's got a lot of... Like he, they, well, he's got
0: that same survivor's guilt that Harry does because he the, James and Pettigrew, as far as he knows, are both dead and Sirius yeah. is in jail, so he's just the one who's left alive by coincidence, just like Harry. So they share that kind of survivor's guilt.
2: Yeah, because um, that's... And Lupin helped me really tap into what this. I felt like this film was about, which is like, you know, Harry... I was saying before, I kind of mentioned it, Harry being the chosen one is, like, viewed by all the other films in this saga as something to celebrate, but in truth it's what separates Harry from everybody else that he knows. You know, like, nobody understands his traumatic history other than maybe Neville. Nobody understands him! Well, yeah, nobody does understand him other than Neville, obviously. Ah, but he doesn't know
1: that Neville has the same history as him. No, the films
2: don't really go into it that much. For all intents and
1: purposes, he, he doesn't know that Neville understands him. Yeah.
2: No, exactly, and like in the second film he hears all these voices that nobody else can and like he can speak Parseltongue, but he's the only person who can do that and in this film he's the only person who passes out when the Dementors come and get him he's the only person that the Dementors are attracted to he's the only person who hears a woman attracted screaming to. Probably <laughs> uh, probably my yeah. favourite
0: scene with Lupin is one that actually isn't in the book where um, J.K. Rowland talked about this scene because she said she saw it and she was like, "Oh my god, you just came like really close to revealing stuff from Deathly Hallows without even realizing it." Which is where Lupin is talking about Lily and how she saw kindness in people that didn't like obviously oh, didn't, deserve it. Yeah. And obviously, that's preferring to Snape. But nobody mm-hmm. knew that. Nobody knew that that was what was being discussed. And J.K. Rowling was just like rubbing her hands, like, "Oh, you just like nailed that without even realizing." Like, <laughs> I am excited about that. Yeah, and it just it got me thinking. Actually, that I think this is. Like the only, well, certainly the only one so far that has actually added in new scenes that aren't in the book. Like there's a lot of little stuff like, um, uh, I, oh, I don't know. Well, there's that animal sweets scene where they're like, oh, I that, love that. I love
3: that. Yeah, that's like one of my other favorite ones because it's so like, it's it's um it, it, the, it's part of the part of the thing kids. that yeah, exactly. And part of the thing that I always miss from the book. Part of, Part of the reason why I love the book so much is because so much of the book is dedicated to the idea of okay, you've got these mystery plots happening, but so much time is about they're at school and they're doing school things and they're being friends and they're hanging out. Um, and obviously, in a film, you don't have the time to to spend on that very much. But just having one bit of that, especially in the beginning when you're sort of settling back into the world, like seeing Harry and Ron like in that environment with their friends just sat around having a laugh. It just it, yeah, it just puts a really nice vibe on it, which is kind of... I mean, it immediately cuts from that outside to ominous, <laughs> lost-style torrential rain. <laughs> but, um... I, I love
2: that. I love that reflection and sort of like, I love the juxtaposition that they have there, because Harry's all having fun inside Hogwarts, but immediately outside of his window, it's terrible weather. I, I love that. coming for him.
1: And, yeah. I love that as well, but like I must, I must admit, as I love the tone setting that Al- Alfonso Caram puts throughout this film to make it like the color grading and the use of pathetic fallacy all the way through it to make everything seem really, really, glim and bleak. But I must admit, the rain gets a bit ham-handed after a while because literally every scene <laughs> they are outside. Yeah, or, there is like, some there is climate rain change going on. There's some climate like,
0: change going on in this film. Like it's like 12 months of winter. Exactly. Like <laughs> it's just
1: it's either dark or rainy or snowy in this film, and that's about it. Yeah, um, which maybe does... blame
0: the dementors. I don't know. Maybe they made it all. Cloudy. I get I why know.
1: because and it do, it does have the effects of making this film feel more grown up, more scary, more like mis- really mysterious go- things going on. Um, but it, it also comes across as um, quite a little bit too. Um, what's it called? Manufactured like he is. Obviously, making it rain to make it seem that way. After a while, and maybe that's just because I'm looking at the film through an analytical lens. And if I wasn't doing yeah, so much, I, just I think to enjoy yeah, I think it. that is as yeah. Much of an issue. Yeah. But the, when I'm watching this film, or when I was watching it yesterday, I, there was a part of me that was thinking, okay, it does really help set the scene. But also, I know he is only doing it purely to help set the scene, which sort of ruins the effect somewhat for me.
0: You do have a point, but I, I think you know it, it, you've got to be bold about this, given that we've had two previous films that he's trying to very clearly break away from. So, you know, uh, mm. I mean, sp- speaking of the really mysterious goings-on, let's talk about Sirius a bit. And I think the most interesting thing about this is that I always forget how little he is actually in the film. Like, he doesn't appear until, like, mm. half an hour from the Jack. end, and he's only and in, like, yet. three scenes,
1: but, and yet, like, he makes a really a good constant mark. presence. Yep. That's how you make a... Villain, I mean, not really, because he's not really a villain. But if he was a villain, that is how you would make a villain. Make Mm -hmm. him a constant threat all the way through. That's really interesting. Um, And ruddy mysterious, because you can't quite understand the motivations and they're quite unpredictable. And have them appear at various points in the film, like when Harry's on the floor, because there's a bus about to come. Um, (laughs) And and just make make them interesting and build them up to be a threat. And then it does a... um, uh, Game of Thrones subversing of expectations by it turns out he's not a threat at all <laughs> but it's interesting and it's really good and then suddenly this tension that it's built up all the way throughout the film it's got to go somewhere because it Karan spent, spent the past what? Uh, two hours trying to build up yeah. tension with this evil villain guy who it suddenly turns out is not so evil after all
2: yeah I think um, I think that that kind of leads into one of my slight criticisms of this film. There are, there are two things that I don't like about this film. One of them is the fact that quite a lot of the drama comes about because the children just don't say... Or the, the adults just don't say to the children, Oh no, the situation that you think is this way, actually, it's not this way. You think that Sirius Black is going to come and murder you? He's not. It's it's this. And like you think that Peter Pettigrew's this? No, it's this and like you know it's the, the adults know all this but they don't say
1: well to be fair most of the adults don't know that do they
2: no no but like you know Lupin knows that Sirius isn't a dangerous serial killer well no he, no, doesn't, he doesn't he says he at doesn't. the very doesn't.
0: end he he but, says... un-
1: until Harry tells him that Pesca is alive he fully believes that it's only when Harry says to him that Peter Pettigrew is still alive, he realises what actually happened. That Pettigrew faked oh, his death. Oh, and then he
2: tries to help him get into the castle. Exactly. Is that when he starts? Right. Got you. Oh no, he ah, doesn't.
1: No, he doesn't. He's got nothing castle. to do with he, that. He, no. He, he, Sirius gets into the castle because he's an animagus, and the Dementors don't know that he's an animagus, and it's the same reason that he managed to escape Azkaban because he could turn into a dog, and that's how he gets into um, Hogwarts in the first place. Up until the point where Harry. Gives them tells um, Lupin on the Marauders map that Peter Pettigrew is there. Um, he nobody except Sirius knows that Peter Pettigrew faked his own death, and so it's only then that we realise that Sirius is actually. Uh, but then
2: why does Snape say that he knew that Lupin was trying to help an old friend get into the he wasn't, castle? In his, the...
1: he he doesn't know that he he. That's what he's assuming because Snape. Snape, like everyone else, oh, thinks right. is that just a Sirius Black is evil. Yeah, that's just Snape oh, assuming ah, that because Lupin and Lupin <laughs> and Sirius used to be friends, that consider that a bit of criticism, uh, you
2: know,
0: gone. Well, I mean, I've got the whole
2: I... scene where it's like, um, "Come on, Remus, let's kill him." And it's like you could just comfort Harry by knowing, saying that it's not him. <laughs> you well, you mean to kill yeah. Peter? But
0: yeah, no. On a, on a different note of criticism, like one of my f- few slightly major criticisms of this film is that. I'm fine with most of the adaptational cuts they make, like it's fine. They, they make good choices about what things to cut and what things to streamline and what stuff to combine and stuff like that. I think eliminating the whole Mooney Wormtail Padfoot and Prongs backstory thing is a mistake. Particularly I think that's a shame. That it, particularly that it never actually tells us that those four Moony Wormtail, Padfoot and Prongs, that's probably are something you don't James Sirius know with, unless you watch the books. Peter Wren, the books. and Remus. That's actually like important as well. And I feel like I would be sort of scratching my head over that part of the plot if I hadn't read the book, especially of why on earth Harry would see a stag and think that's his dad. Yeah, the stag is the one yeah, that sticks That part stick is never out. explained. That really stands out to me as a point that they missed in the adaptation there, that if you're going to cut that part, it doesn't pay off but later.
1: As far as I'm aware in the film, um, he doesn't see the stag and thinks that it's da- his dad. He sees someone who looks like his dad behind the stag and assumes it's his dad.
0: I guess, but that, again, that's much more... because it's It him, would be much more clear him. if
1: you just found out that Harry's dad can turn stag. If only he'd clearly seen his eyes and realised that it was his mother's eyes, <laughs> he would have realised it wasn't James O'Long. Well,
0: or... they also don't...
3: I, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think they explain the whole Patronus animal thing in this film, do they? No. 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 So Patronus is a like more...
1: weird, weird white shields that come out of games yeah, in this film. Yeah, so it's
3: even more ambiguous when you see the, the stag, because we haven't established that. Oh yeah, by the way, that's... you Because know, the whole idea of... Yeah, them, that having that animal as their Patronus connects them. I, I agree that it's a shame that, you know, because all it would take is for, you know, and it's an extra hint to what, not that you need an extra hint in this film, but there's an extra hint to the werewolf thing you know, when Lupin tells Harry, like, well yeah, I was one of these I'm Mooney. But he doesn't say why but then we sort of, you know, you infer it later from, from the animals they turn into. I think it's a shame they lost uh, yeah.
0: that. I mean, at no point in any of the eight films is it ever revealed that James can turn into a stag. So that stag thing is just completely unexplained in the films. The other thing as well that really bothers me is that in all the other films, everybody just openly says Wormtail. They call Pettigrew Wormtail, but that's never been revealed. Uh, It really annoys me that. (laughs) So I guess eventually you would figure it out, but yeah, I wish they'd actually explain that. My only other criticism of of the writing, and it's a minor one because I get that it's funny, like the opening scene, the Lumos Maxima, First of all, we all know what's really going on in that scene, obviously. Like, there's a subtext. You know, Harry's whacking off. There we go. Thanks for that. <laughs> not subtext anymore. But, That's text. Yeah, I mean, as if we didn't get what a teenage boy under the sheets filling the room with white might be a metaphor for. Um, obviously, he can't perform magic outside of school, which becomes a major plot point one scene later. So that bothers me. I think that there's <laughs> well, a way around this.
2: <laughs> See, I thought about this too, but I think there's a way around it, which is that when Vernon says to Harry, Ah can not allowed to do magic outside of school, and then Harry goes, oh yeah, try me. And I feel like there's this element of Harry when he's living at the Dursleys where, like, first of all, magic is an escape for him, so he might try to break the rules a little bit, and also... Dumbledore and the Ministry of Magic clearly do not give a shit that Harry's using magic outside of school because uh, it's like oh Harry we
1: don't send No no to no up. no they he would Loring they, would, they would he
0: would have got in trouble for that I mean, definitely I, I
1: know it's I know it's a different director but in the second film they send a letter to him in the film to say that all he used was a levitation charm like when Gary and Leviosa and he was on like a so final morning like, that's yeah. like a small thing so if they're going to send a letter about a levitation charm why wouldn't they send a letter about wait, his wh- three Wait wait what they do what in this When movie? when Dobby lifts the cage they think it's Harry and put
0: him on like a final warning of if you do that again you're expelled.
2: When does that happen in the film?
0: Doesn't happen in the film. Happens in the book. Oh, that's that's why it happens yeah. in the film. No, but in in, in yeah. Order of the Phoenix they that that part of it gets paid off in that when but the next time they the whole... they see him performing magic he gets expelled.
2: But that's the whole thing, though. Like that's because of the Voldemort thing. Like they're so paranoid about him saying that Voldemort's back. That's why they bring him in. It's part of a larger conspiracy. Mm. It's just that that's the little technicality they get him on to bring him in.
0: Having True. said that, you still would not just brazenly practice your spells.
2: No, I feel slam. like Harry would be a nicer kid than that. He would be more of yeah. a goody
0: two shoes. Yeah,
3: I feel like anyway. it's sh- it's, sh- it's just shorthand. It's cinema. It's a it's a it's a cinematic thing to be like. Yeah, this is you know you're establishing that it is magic from the very first, and
1: it is piece like, of live actually action.
0: important that the scene is just a metaphor. Like it's, it, it it's, is literally
1: yeah. a coming of age film. Oh, hey. gee! Oh, you had to lower the tone. <laughs> what? I was just oh, yeah, because anyway. anyway, you were
3: right. You were riding so high on the classiness.
0: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, White stuff. but the, honestly, one, those are like the only things I would criticize in terms of the writing.
2: I I oh, yeah. have one more in terms of like. I think the one thing that the film really doesn't get right is Malfoy. Malfoy's like got, like, to nothing to do in this one, though. Yeah, yeah. Even, in like, I mean, it's like even in the first two films, there's this element of, like, ice-cold villainy to Tom Felton. And, you know, he, he was, in the, first, in the second film, he is the kind of kid to drop what is essentially a racial slur into an argument. But then they do the same line again in this film and they retread it and it kind of just reveals that that whole scene is just like, he plays the stereotypical playground like bully wimp where it's like, they're kind of really like, oh yeah, look at me and I hate you and I'm superior to you. But at the same time, as soon as someone challenges him, he's really kind of craven and snivelly. He's yeah, a massive wimp. Yeah, I agree. And, he, doesn't, yeah. he
3: doesn't really get the same... Um, I think Malf- like Malfoy in the books you know staying on the films but in the books i think malfoy does get more and more sinister as time goes on and it starts quite early because like he is sort of he's wrapped up in all of this dark stuff with his family connections and whatnot and it's like you don't get a sense of like oh they're becoming teenagers and it's getting more angsty and also malfoy's becoming more of a sinister like like genuinely unpleasant like character you're right. He's kind of a slapstick comedy villain in this, which is it a, is, it is kind
0: of it is kind of in his character though that he, he's all front and it's, he's a bit of a wuss and he'll just roll over like that is yeah. I just feel like kind of he's exactly. a
2: bit underutilized. It doesn't really seem to achieve anything bigger. He's basically just there to pop up every two or three minutes and go, oh, uh, I I remember me from the first two films. Got to keep me around because I feel like this film doesn't really do anything. Nothing really happens other than the scene with. But beak, there's nothing that really happens with Malfoy in this film that has like massive ramifications on anything in a grander scheme. But then
1: the, again, the, does, there isn't anything that happens with Malfoy in the book that makes things in the series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I don't, again, I think that's I think a lot of the, a lot of the good things and some of the bad things necessarily actually probably come from what happens in the book in this. But yeah Malfoy's
0: got very little material in this one and same in Goblet of Fire as well and but it's Lord still the third point he's, he's, he's off the scene for quite a few books actually At, like, yeah.
1: Alfonso takes creative license to do basically whatever the hell that he wants with this film and add things to it that he really likes or change things that he really likes he could have done the same with Malfoy if he wanted to and he just chooses not to um, for some reason
3: he gives him a very villainous haircut as well to make you know that he's a douchebag. He gives him like a hideous like bowl curtains cut for some yeah. reason.
0: At, at the time as like, you know, I, I, as a kid who like didn't understand how striking puberty could like make some people I I like when I first saw the trailer for the film or
1: something, I was like, have they like, cast a new kid as Malfoy? Like, that's not <laughs> him, is it? I yes. was so shocked. You'd be for mistaking that all the main cast have been recasting this because they suddenly. They Neville looks a lot had. different. Ne-
0: Neville is really suddenly like. The baby fat's fallen off him a bit. I mean, obviously, we know what's to come with Matthew Lewis where he turns into like this hench dude. But, you know. Yeah, they've all started to grow up finally he in this one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: Um, so, what do you guys make of Michael Gambon as Dumbledore in this? Because I feel like he's playing the Richard Harris version of Dumbledore in this.
0: Yeah, I was saying to Jay before we came on that, I think in this one, and I emphasise in this one, he's got like that twinkle in his eye and he's quite magical. I think this is the mm. only film where I would say that, because I really, really don't like Michael Gambon's Dumbledore in the other films. But in this one, he's quite pleasant.
1: I think there's, yeah. Always, yeah. there's always something inherent about the way that Michael Gambon acts as Dumbledore where it always still seems a little bit off to me. I think it's maybe the way that he talks um, is less, maybe less friendly. He's got more gravitas to his voice and he speaks faster and he's he doesn't he doesn't care for his words as much. He just mm-hmm. sort of, um, the way that he says them is always, he's always a little bit angrier than what it was with Richard Harris. Uh, not Richard. Yeah, Harris. Richard Harris. Richard yeah. Harris, Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, there's definitely moments in this film where he does feel like actual Dumbledore. Like where he's talking to the Great Hall and he talks about the darkness and then how you always have to turn on the light and he makes a candle appear. Yeah. that's he's cute. Bit, I like it. a bit funny. Mm. Like, um, it's nice you get a bit I of I feel the like Reverend that's something Dumbledore. Richard Harris's Dumbledore would do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the
2: whole three turns should do it. And the whole um and when they get back and it's like, Professor, we did it and he's like, Did what? Good night. And mm. it, that's all very something that Richard Harris's Dumbledore would do. I mean, it was never going to be seamless no. or anything like that. It was always going to be a huge difference. But I feel like this film balances the transition quite well in a way that obviously I don't want to get too far into it because we'll have a whole podcast about it in about a, you know two or three weeks' time. But
0: he's very angry in the Goblet of Fire. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> I, I, not just Goblet of Fire. I feel like from that film onwards. Film Dumbledore is like I just he's, a completely he he's a different character. He's an original character to the film. Like, he's a, nothing like Dumbledore. There's a
1: fundamental part of Dumbledore in the next um four films, is it after this? Or five films? Five, five films. He just doesn't like Harry. <laughs> that's what it is. He just hates <laughs> Harry. <laughs> he's he just, he's just
0: not him. like he's not as friendly <laughs> as he should be. He's not as nice as he should be. He seems no, like a grumpy old dude. Yeah,
1: it comes—it comes to something though when you're talking about the criticisms of other films. When we're talking about, yeah, it well. no,
0: he's good in this one. The the other new character in this one is Professor Trelawney, and Emma oh Thompson God. just steals every moment she's, that she's in. She's I think so good in this.
2: <laughs> oh, that's another amazing bit of editing in this film where yeah. she goes. You must look beyond and every and the camera suddenly switches as everybody (laughs) turns yeah that's great that is amazing editing that's editing creating visual comedy it's it's fantastic i love that and
1: it's another good example of how alfonso coran as a director really knows how to use his cast and to emphasize their acting abilities because it's it's emma thompson who plays professor trelawney emma thompson is like she's so good and she does professor trelawney so well and there are moments where the camera like pans to her face as she's saying something when she goes, You have the grim and her Grimm. face like she sticks a yeah. face out and her nose goes up and the it camera the, whole frame. The, the camera <laughs> yeah. is like under this angle for her. That makes her, her head just look really funny. And it's a really great shot of someone acted really well and it's a good moment in the film to show how you can really capture a, um, an actor's way of acting, a character. Um, in a real, in a way that just really emphasises it and makes it so much better, which is just again something that you never had in the first two films because every shot was just a standard "let's put a camera here and see what <laughs> happens" shot. Uh, we're being harsh on the first two here. We are.
2: I think yeah. um, this is also, isn't it? This is the second prophecy of hers in this film. The first one is the um, boy born at the end of July, neither can live, yes. only survives. Yep. And this one is the um, he will return tonight. Um, you know the one who's betrayed his friends will be
0: reunited once more yeah <laughs> oh
1: fun also dear
3: boy did you yeah. say something
1: I do she ha- has the sight I do have one criticism of this film or one main criticism anyway which isn't necessarily it, it's actually again it's more complimenting the how well the film has made and stuff but I think the film is made so well and feels really realistic um In all the ways that we just mentioned and a few other ways, like, first of all, the camera movement just makes it feel more like an actual world. And there are lots of other things in this film that make the universe of Harry Potter seem like a living, breathing, natural world. Like when, as just one quick example, when Harry leaves the Dursley's house and he's walking through the estate and the camera's following him as he's walking and you never get cameras following people as they walk in the Christopher Columbus films and also um, he just walks into a, like, a roundabout at the end of a street and he's just got no clue where he mm. is and he's by this park and there's this roundabout and it just makes me think, I've never seen like a full on road or a roundabout in a Harry Potter film before, <laughs> it suddenly makes you realise that these films actually take place in our world they're not just like some random universe off in the middle of nowhere, they're happening yeah. here and they're happening in our universe, which makes the world Feel really believable and really livable, but another good thing. Uh, sorry, go. no, it's like I was just going to say the reason I said that is my main criticism of the film is that um, it's, it's directed really realistically and it looks really, really realistic. But it just draws out some of the inept acting from the main characters in the film. I think like, I, I think Daniel Radcliffe is quite poor. In Daniel Radcliffe film. and Emma Watson, in yeah. particular, I just think like they're wooden in the first two films. But it's not so bad because the direction is also wooden, so it sort of doesn't seem too bad. <laughs> but because the direction is so good, can you stop film, it, Like
0: with these backhanded compliments. That was
1: like no one came mm. out of that sentence. Well, no, no one did. Go but on. Because the direction in this film no is so one deserved good, it to. makes the film so good. It just makes the characters. More wooden than they actually are. Like there's there's a scene on the train when the train stops and basically Harry and Amani just stop and they go, oh, the train has stopped. What will happen now? That <laughs> is basically what they say, and that is basically how they He's say like, it. Don't know. Maybe we've broken down. outron That was my thought. Yeah, Ouchron. That was my foot That's a really
3: bad delivery of that one. There's that so line. many. I so hate uh, the one. I really hate
0: this. One. I hate this. That's rich coming from the owner of that smelly old shoe brush.
1: Oh.
2: <laughs> my my um, my one that's really bad is the one where um what's his face fudge says uh, given the state of things and harry goes the state of things oh, sir? god yeah. it's, it's like mr Ben's going
0: "Exactly." <laughs> it's
1: like a like a gcse pupil trying to do an act performance on stage <laughs> the state of oh, things oh, sir? <gasps> I've got oh. to ask a question because it's got a question mark <laughs> at the end of it.
2: He more he more than makes up for it, I think, in the fifth film. I think Daniel Radcliffe's excellent in The Order of the Phoenix, but obviously we'll we'll get to that. Exactly. Um, not very good now, this though. Time. Not very. Yeah, good he's
0: now. I think Rupert Grint's still really good. Yeah, for he's what all it's right. worth. I think he's still really good. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah Rupert, Rupert Grint. I think most of them are good.
3: I, I think Rupert Grint's good. I just think that wrong kind of gets shortchanged in.
1: He's not in this much, is it?
3: Kind of all the films, to be honest. I think his character's kind of. Kind of left by the wayside as a proper character, but yeah, in this one he's kind of not in it, which is kind of understandable because he has point. to not be—he has to not be there for the climax and the climax and the, clima- and the cli- because the climax is like the same period of time twice. Mm. You kind of like that—that that, it's necessary that a big chunk of the film is not going to have him in it, but I think you do feel his presence is missed.
1: Well, I like it's, it's, it's sort of—I I mean, it's, it's paying off. Chamber of Secrets,
0: don't forget though, where Hermione misses. The end of Chamber of Secrets and it's all Harry and Ron, so true, they pay true, it forward yeah.
1: and it's Hermione in this but one. But you don't feel a lack of Hermione in Chamber of Secrets because there's a lot of other stuff that happens with Hermione. Because as as you will know if you listen to last week's podcast, yeah. Hermione's basically the MVP of Chamber of Secrets. She's Ron, the MVP of every single one of Ron these. is not the MVP of this film. I mean, it's Hermione again, obviously. Um, or whoever invented the time turner, why do we not see that in any of the films? I do
0: like <laughs> the one can of worms in Harry Potter you should never, ever, ever open is the time travel, because it breaks the entire story. Let's never talk about the time travel. Well,
3: it doesn't, it doesn't, because it it works off of the the cheeky time travel logic of just sort of, it's a closed loop. So you you never really
0: change the past, you just kind of live out
3: the past event that you did when you went back in time. Well,
0: Well, let me ask ask you this, they knew exactly where the Basilisk took out people. Uh, Why didn't someone go back and see what it was in Chamber of Secrets? Oh yeah, in in terms of
3: that, in terms of why isn't time travel used more often? Yeah, yeah, fair enough. But the, in terms of like the rules and the, the like the logic and consistency of it, I think it's, it's oh no, that's fine. Yes, that's yeah. fine.
0: That, 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 that's fine. It's just like the the you know it's it's a big piece to put on the board. And the have that funny bit in the Order of the Phoenix book or something, where they just casually say offhand, "Oh, there was an explosion and every time turner in the world was destroyed." <laughs> Uh,
3: and then The Cursed Child came out.
0: Yeah.
2: With oh, with God. time travel in anything, I always take the uh, the Looper logic. Is, has anybody seen Looper? Yes, I have. Yeah. 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 Where there's that conversation they have, Bruce Willis and Joseph Gordon-Levitt at the start, where they try to explain that they are each other. And then Bruce Willis goes, time travel's really complicated, let's not talk about it. Let's just let it happen. And then just follow the logic of this film, and then try not to think about it too much. Yeah, and it happens I feel in... Like,
3: Austin Powers as well, When in Austin Powers 2, which is not a film you get referenced very often. Um, is that one the spy
1: who shagged me? Yeah. It, there's, the time tra- there's the bit before
3: he goes back in time and he starts to ask questions and Basil Exposition says, I suggest you just don't worry about it and enjoy yourself. And then he looks at the camera and goes, that goes for you all too.
0: Jesus Christ. I've never it's seen great. that and I don't think I want to. It's great. <laughs> anyway, away from Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me, let's get back to... <laughs> Uh here's the thing, Bookbeak. Um I absolutely love the Bookbeak flight scene, mainly because it's a just yes. a quick John Williams showreel. Um so I love that. <laughs> and it's also a bit of a Visit Scotland show reel
1: as well. Um Bookbeak himself hasn't aged well though, has he? I don't think he's awful. Like, he is not as bad as the characters look flying around on broomsticks. But he's not I think great. Buckbeak would be terrible another backhanded by you compliment
0: that. there, but
3: <laughs> no, I get what you mean. I think I agree. I he, Buckbeak's not not the worst. Like I, I was quite surprised by how undistracting I found him. He's
2: better than the yeah.
1: basilisk in the previous film, definitely.
2: Be, like I say though, Andy, be careful. You know, as ha- has Hag- as Hagrid says, uh, you know that they're very proud creatures, very oh.
3: easily
1: offended. Sorry, sorry, so sorry, Buckbeak. A... <laughs> you <know>. Hopefully, hopefully, Chris <laughs> Bond, are... isn't. If we hear the knock on the door, let's assume it's either Chris Columbus or Buckbeak coming to kick us. And <laughs> <laughs> well, Buckbeak I, gets uh, a pretty happy ending to the, the story. Um, he gets to ride off into the sunset
0: with Gary Oldman. It's a pretty, pretty good ending for Buckbeak, yeah. really.
2: To be honest, the, uh, the Buckbeak scene relates a lot to me, to the uh, the Firebolt scene, which is why the, why I like the fact that the Firebolt scene is left to the end, because with Buckbeak, Harry's finally, that's why he's screaming and like why he's like, yes, woo! You know, like he he feels for the first time in the whole film, he feels free, and then when he gets the firebolt, suddenly there's a part of his identity that's come back again. And I feel like over the whole course of the film, all Harry is really, sh- well, I say all Harry. Harry's really struggled with his own identity about what it means to be him, what it means to be so talented. Like it feels like a big burden to be a hero in this film for him. So right at the end of it, he realizes, oh yeah, no, I still get some special privileges. Um, and I get the fastest broom, in the, the fastest broom in the world, as uh, one of the kids says, when they're unboxing it and unwrapping it. Um, and then it feels like when he gets the fireball, a part of his identity comes back. And so it's just this huge moment of celebration for him, it's where after the whole expecto patronum thing, where he like... I mean, I love the Expecto Patronum scene at the end because Harry literally watches himself overcome his ghosts and his, you know, all the skeletons in his closet. I think that's, that's a great... Again, another thing that's made me really curious to go back and read the books is just the fact that they, they set up that final Expecto Patronum thing where Harry is literally watching himself. You know, it's one of those, if I could have an out-of-body experience to tell myself to do something in one moment, I think they they do that to Harry with the Expector Patron thing. So that's him kind of going, right, oh, shake off all this weight of expectation, finally do the spell properly and well and sort of like punch above my weight and deliver on the potential that everybody expects of me by doing this spell that is far beyond my years of magic Well, yeah and then at the end of the film he's like got the fireball gonna have some fun again now this bit of me's come back as well and it feels like harry gets slowly broken down across the course of this film so that he can piece himself back together in the final 25 minutes and i feel like the fireball is that last piece of the puzzle where he gets his friends back he gets his broom back he's a great wizard again he stopped doubting himself all this kind of thing and i feel like that's why it ends so abruptly because it just wants to catch harry in that moment of pure elation and then stick it as a freeze frame and that's your lasting image for the film i hate that freeze frame though i
0: really do hate that freeze frame (laughs) me too it's it's a very minor point yeah but the
3: the patronus (laughs) thing as well is also really you know it's it's the idea of him um previously his happiest memory was tainted with sadness because it was about his parents who he never knew and it's also in the past whereas you know I, I don't know is it i can't remember now if it's spelled out in the film but i feel like it's spelled out in the book that it's when he finally does it properly it's because he's thinking of going to live with Sirius and it so it's is, like it's yeah. a happy memory going into the future that is sort of like that's that's now what he's changed to lean towards and that's why he's able to to do it
1: Hmm. also as the internet has taught me if you mute it it actually looks like he's saying it's pinned to my scrotum (laughs) you are just on a roll this week which is obviously the best thing about the This whole is film. like the first
0: one of our podcasts that's going to have to be like rated 12. That's not true. We have sworn in many of our podcasts. I know.
2: I've, I, I've put the explicit tag on all of our podcasts. Don't worry.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Didn't realize we were so foul mouthed. Harry Potter <laughs>
1: explicit podcast. Well, Ooh, I <laughs> know what this
0: could be. In Goblet of Fire, we've got the big piss off coming. If so... you're expecting... <laughs> oh, my God, we do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Yeah.
2: A, a landmark moment in 21st century cinema that where Ron Weasley turns around and goes, piss off. Honestly,
0: I was so shocked.
1: I'll never forget how I felt. like, Oh
0: my God, oh my
2: God. I can't
1: and believe everyone that. applauds. am
2: swearing and my parents are next to me, I know.
1: <laughs> and everyone in the store stood up and applauded.
0: And on, on that note, it <laughs> has be a head towards Goblet of Fire. Unless anyone has anything else to add, I think
1: let's let's I, score
3: this thing. Can I just quickly reference possibly my no. favourite line in the whole thing? It's Well, go it's on, more of a line delivery. Wait, it, it's not...
1: Catching Smelt Weaver
3: Oh, Sorry, my my second favourite line delivery <laughs> is when Snape is teaching the werewolf lesson, and it's it 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 speaks to Alan Rickman knowing how to act and deliver lines, um, but he <laughs> he sets them the homework. And obviously the whole thing is like, "Hey, I'm doing werewolves." Uh, no, you know, no reason. And he's like, well, "Give me two rolls of parchment, with particular emphasis on recognizing it, like really, <laughs> really forcefully." Every
0: line in that scene, like the the famous it one, is turned to page, page three hundred and ninety-four, which he gets twice in is. the scene.
1: Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> uh, Good <laughs> old Alan.
0: The only other thing I haven't mentioned is the score, which I think this is the best Harry Potter score. This is his and best John one. John Williams's yep. last, by far the best um, one. It's oh, it's so good. It's so so good.
1: I'm almost disappointed that they don't have the very Potter Christmas music. <laughs> <laughs> when, um, oh, the Christmas and, and they around.
2: also um, they don't have the uh, the big kind of I forget what it's called the. Um, Oh, it's uh, reuniting friends or something. Oh, leaving like Hogwarts, um... leaving Hogwarts. Da, 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 da,
1: da, we don't hear. We're not doing 12. this again.
0: We're not doing this again. We, are... no, no, Rob, no, we're not.
1: Now, no. we won't hear that now until the end of the last film. Yeah, at the end of yeah. definitely. Has, yeah. So uh, you got a while before bugger. that comes up.
0: Yes, we do have a while <laughs> before that comes up. So let's let's uh, let's put a lid on this one. So, yeah. anyone want to go first with giving this a score and you, you, Andy, you go first. Oh, thanks. Okay. Um, Right. Well, it's not like completely perfect. I do have that one major criticism, which is that I think they cut slightly too much out of the Moony, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs backstory, and that part of the film slightly doesn't make sense because of it. That's my only major criticism. Everything else in this film, but yeah, basically everything, I love. Um, it's just so well made and so well directed, and there's so much love gone into this one. I can watch it all day, um, so it's a nine point five for me.
1: Oh, that's wow, high! It's very high. Yeah. Ooh, that is high. This is, very and this is that's the that's the, the highest secrets. that
0: we're gonna hit for and Harry Potter for me probably. High. So I might as well give it a very high one.
1: So, yeah, uh, Jake, do you want to go next? Yeah, sure why not. Um, this is also my favorite Harry Potter film because it is the best Harry Potter film. It's the one that feels most like a real film, um, and not a series of events that happen on screen. It's the one with the most interesting plot, which you could argue is probably because of the book, maybe not, and the, the probably the plot that feels most self-contained as well, because the stuff that happens in this film, although it does touch briefly upon the stuff that happens in the rest of the universe, and especially in terms of like uh, Mooney won't help Prongs, although you don't get much of that in the film, a lot of what happens in this book is very much like in its own thing, which is quite nice as well, um, and it's it's a really good-looking film. Not quite so well acted from the main cast, but some of the supporting cast are just absolutely fantastic in this film. Um, so I will give it an 8.5 out of 10 baked potatoes.
0: Oh, we're doing 10 okay. baked potatoes now. Yeah. Okay. It used to be five baked potatoes. But <laughs> well, I don't know how. How would you have got an 8.5? You would have to do 4.25. 4. It's, it's <laughs> 4.25 <put laughs> it's, it's baked it's potatoes. That
2: spell on him. He's put, put that spell on him where everything you touch multiplies. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: Um, and I've done that to five potatoes.
0: Oh, that was a good call forward, Rob. That was good. Uh, hey. yeah. Okay. Uh, Jay. Uh,
3: I mean, I, I mean, I echo most of what you said. It's the best one. It's my favorite one. It's it has you know it has flaws, but I think I'd, I'd much rather watch something that wasn't perfect, but that was made with a very clear like vision and a very clear style, which this one absolutely has. Um, I think it's just it's just really it's just a really fun film to watch it's really interesting it's it's really quotable um, Oh, so quotable yeah. and yeah I, I i i it's my favorite yeah favorite part film i think i have to give it i don't know out of 10 maybe 8.5 may i echo that yeah Okay. Really good film. Um, really good so film.
2: I totally forgot to give my score before we went to the guests. You know, usually we do the guest last, and I totally forgot that I hadn't given my score. Uh, that means so you've been
1: relegated gonna... to guest cast. Sorry, Rob. We'll have to decide whether we <laughs> have you back next week. Jay's you oh, searched, well. you know, so you're not on next week, but Jay is. Oh,
2: God. God. Oh, God damn it. You brought I, this I have... on yourself.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, well. Uh, but anyway, I would uh, I give this a, a solid 9, 9.0. Uh, like I say, the Malfoy stuff is a bit dodgy. Um... You know, blah, blah, blah. But, you yeah, know, it's just great. It's very stylishly directed. It's a shame that he didn't do all of the other ones because all of the other films so desperately want to be this one. And again, I come back to the way I summarized it, which is that in the first two films, Harry goes chasing after Mystery and Danger, and in this one, Mystery and Danger comes chasing after him which means that we get to spend a lot of time with Harry on his own, isolated, as all of these encroaching threats get nearer and nearer towards him. We get to watch how Harry would, how Harry really respon- responds to that when he's on the defensive rather than going to look at things. And you find that he likes to take solace in things. And Alphonse Cuaron, the, or maybe the books, I don't know, but I feel like there's a lot of loneliness in this story for Harry that the first two films never, ever tap into. And maybe only briefly where harry everyone thinks he's the heir of slytherin in the chamber of secrets but that's about the only moment in the first two films where you think right yeah let's get into how isolated it can be to be a hero because you know it's it's lonely at the top as they say so yeah no really big fan of this um just an absolutely ginormous fan of it so yeah it's okay. uh, kind of- a big old uh big old yeah for me Okay, big old, uh, brilliant.
0: Big old Y E A H nine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, brilliant. So we are done with that session of Azkabanter. Um, oh, oh, yes. Boo. Uh, Jay, thank next. you very much for joining us. Uh, yeah, thank yeah. you as always for joining us. Always a thank pleasure you, to have you here. Yeah, thank you uh, for I having me once again. Our company.
3: Yeah. Yes, most definitely. Thanks again.
0: You Let's
2: won't. hope it's not another 13 months
0: before you join us. Again. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, we are tackling Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, for which yes, we, we have the return of Noah. We've got Noah yeah, back. we do have Noah returning. And I should add that for the
2: rest of the Harry Potter series, um, Nor isn't going to be featured other, other, other than in the Goblet of Fire. But when we finish the Harry Potter series and when we go to the Rise of Skywalker, uh, Nor will be... Permanent member of Cast
0: again. Yeah. So,
2: so, She's renegotiated uh, so, her
0: contract and we've agreed new terms. But we yes, did have exactly. to pay her double. While so, everyone was yeah, focused she, she while everyone was focused on Disney table. and Sony fighting over Spider Man, we had to have these no contract negotiations and she drives a hard bargain, <laughs> let me tell you that. <laughs> we had to cut a whole yeah, se- we had we'll to cut the, the whole series where we watch all James Bonds. <laughs> oh, what a shame that we had to cut.
2: <laughs> but yeah, no, this has been great. I love this film. I've liked talking about it. Mischief
0: managed...